Our scripture reading this morning comes from Hebrews 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown for you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that in as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. We're grateful to have Kinnan uh, on staff with us uh, as our pastoral intern. He is studying at Denver Seminary, um, partially to think through what it means to be a pastor and to discover God's very specific call for him. Um, but we uh, are grateful for him to be able to come and preach and share God's word with us this morning. So welcome, Kinnan. Morning, everybody. So, (laughs) if you have had the privilege of hearing me preach this summer, you know that every time I preach, I have to bring up a certain movie. And this week, it's the movie Big. Um, Have any of you seen the movie Big? Cool. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Yeah, so if you haven't seen it, Dominic, the movie is about... (laughs) It's about a 12-year-old boy whose wish is granted at this magical county fair game to become a 30-year-old man. And it sounds more complicated than it is, but it's basically about this kid in an adult's body and enjoying all the perks that come with being an adult. So once his wish is granted, he moves to New York City and he happens upon a job at a New York toy company as a tester which is a great job for a kid. 
Um, and so this gives him the salary that he needs to get an apartment and to fill it with everything that a boy could want, uh, junk food, toys, arcade games, pinball machines, everything. But as the movie goes on, he starts to be overwhelmed by the stresses of adulthood. And he finds the same county fair game and he makes the wish to return to his 12-year-old life and be united, reunited with his family. And that happens and that's the happy ending. I think all of us can relate to wanting to escape the stresses of adulthood. A lot of us have difficult work-life balances, working long hours at a job we may not like to receive a salary that may not be enough to grant our wishes and our desires. Or maybe you struggle with drama and fighting within your families, your marriages, your communities. Or it may just be that you don't have enough time on your hands to do any kind of fun thing that you used to like to do, and cutting out responsibilities in your life is too hard on your finances to be possible. Whatever the case, it would be nice to be granted the wish to return to the simplicity of our childhood when we had less responsibilities. And I think this is a universal feeling for all adults at some point. But for us Christians, we have the added responsibilities of our religion. Because when you're struggling with your family, with your, um, with your marriages, with your finances, with your work-life balance, you don't really want to go to church and be told that you also need to be adding on study of the Bible, praying, spending time with God, serving your church and community. You already have so much responsibility in your life. It's hard enough without God constantly asking you to sacrifice for him, whether that means sacrificing your salary, your free time, what you want to do, where you want to live, whatever. We may start to resent our maturity in the faith and want to return to the days when we did what we wanted to do, free from the responsibilities of Christianity. At a certain point, whether you've made it to this point or not yet, you'll probably ask, is the cost of discipleship really worth it? Is it worth sacrificing my happiness to do what God wants me to do? Do I really want him to make decisions in my life when I know that that really just means he's going to ask me to sacrifice more and more? Jesus said that we were going to be hated by the world for following him. Do we really want to be hated by the world? It's a tough decision, and the people to whom the book of Hebrews was written were asking the same questions. The excitement they felt when they converted to Christianity had begun to fade as the weight of their responsibilities dawned on them. For those first Christians, converting to Christianity could mean being banned or shunned by your friends, families, communities, and even losing your jobs and homes. This Jesus guy had promised them everything, 
and seemed to be giving them nothing. It would be a lot easier to return to their old way of life, Judaism. And so the author of Hebrews needed to remind them what made choosing the life of discipleship worth it. Let's see what he has to say in Hebrews 8, rereading verses 1 through 7. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, and the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest, capital P there, also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See to it that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion to look for a second. Those of us who were here last week will remember that we went through Hebrews 7, a large trunk of scripture that explained how Jesus came to be this high priest and this hope that he offers that you can find nowhere else. Chapter 8, the one we just read, is inseparable from the chapter before because it answers our question. What is this hope that makes following Jesus worth it? How is the sacrifice rewarded? And the author of Hebrews begins to explain that hope here in chapter 8. Because as we see in verse 7, he shows that he is explaining the point in what we are saying of chapter 7. And this passage gives a shocking explanation of how the Old Testament relates to the New. The priests of the Old Testament and the many sacrifices they offered to God on behalf of the people and the tent in which they ministered, which is the tabernacle, were all just a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Everything involved with the ministry of the priests was a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. All of those things had been leading to Jesus who would make the ultimate sacrifice his death and then serve as a high priest in the true tabernacle. Most of us are familiar with the concept that Jesus' death for our sins was the ultimate sacrifice and we no longer have to provide those burnt offerings of the Old Testament because Jesus sacrifice for us. But we may be less familiar with the concept of Jesus as high priest who ministers in the holy place of heaven. What we learn here is that not only did Jesus offer the ultimate sacrifice, but he is now serving the ultimate ministry. A priest's role was to advocate and plead for the people before God. We no longer need those human priests because we have Jesus himself advocating for us before the Father. 
That means that Jesus's ministry is to ask the Father daily to forgive your sins and come to your aid. And he never forgets about you. Hallelujah. The tabernacle was the ancient Israelites' holy place in which the priests offered sacrifices and advocated for God's people, which was later replaced by the temple, one we're more familiar with. But we learn in verse 5 that the tabernacle was not even the original. Moses, when he received the instructions to build the tabernacle, was shown by God a place in heaven, the most holy place, in which to base his plans for the tabernacle. And now that Jesus is a great high priest, he ministers in that most holy place, better than the tabernacle. For me, this image conjures up um, architectural recreations. Um, Like, for example, if you didn't know, in Nashville, there is a recreation of the Parthenon. The Parthenon, this once majestic temple, huge temple in Greece that drew droves of people, is now a small, rinky-dink tourist destination for country music fans. In Jerusalem, there's a a model of the beautiful temple that was around in Jesus' time. It's a pretty big model. Um, I don't remember the exact dimensions, but... It's still only a model. Las Vegas is probably most famous for these architectural recreations with their smaller versions of the Eiffel Tower and the Statue of Liberty. But the author author of Hebrews tells us that the tabernacle and the temple, these beautiful, holy buildings of God, were just recreations of the real thing in heaven. So the ministry of the priests and the tabernacle was part of the old covenant. So the reason that Jesus is a better high priest with a better ministry and a better tabernacle is because he mediates a better covenant. The reason Jesus is a better high priest with a better ministry and a better tabernacle is because he mediates a better covenant. Uh, Who can tell me what is a covenant? We use it all the time in church. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Yeah. We use it a lot. We don't define it a lot. Um, I like Sandra Richter's definition. She says that a covenant is an agreement enacted between two parties, in this case between God and man, in which one or both make promises under oath to perform or refrain from certain actions stipulated in advance. So it's an agreement in which God and man both make promises to either perform or refrain from certain actions. In other words, it's a legal contract. Uh, A modern-day example would be marriage. Two people coming together and making promises to one another that unites them into a covenant relationship. A long time ago, God made a covenant with the Israelites in which he promised to protect them and provide for them and be their God if they would promise to worship and serve him. 
One of the stipulations of this covenant was to have priests who would minister in the tabernacle and advocate for them, which is what we've been talking about. But in verse 7, we are told that this covenant was flawed, which seems a little sacrilegious at first because this is a covenant that God made, but God wasn't the flaw in the covenant. The problem, exactly, was that the covenant hinged on the people. The people had to keep their side of the deal, which was to worship and serve God. And they were really bad at it. They couldn't stop sinning against each other and against God, so they broke the covenant by failing to fulfill their side. Sound familiar? When we start to resent the responsibilities and sacrifices in our lives, we begin to look like Tom Hanks from Big, a child in an adult's body. Because this is when we are most susceptible to the sins of our past. Once we say, I'm done sacrificing for God and my family, we start to fall back into those sins that bring us relief. For you, that may mean anger or pride or greed, which is a way of deflecting the responsibility and the pain that you have onto others, letting others suffer instead of sacrificing for them. Maybe you struggle with sloth or gluttony and you avoid your problems through pleasure, like watching too much TV or playing video games, too much video games, or reading or studying, whatever the case. And you start to look like an iPad baby inside of a human's body, an adult's body. Babies are still humans. (laughs) Maybe you revert back to lust or envy, desiring and craving the things that you gave up when you became a Christian. When we begin to romanticize our old ways of life, our lives begin to look like them again in all their ugliness. Recognize the ugliness of that past. And remember, before you give your life to Christ, you are responsible for your sins and in danger of the consequences of that sin. You need to be saved from your failures And so did the Israelites who broke the covenant with God. Luckily, God offered them a solution. Let's keep reading from verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, 
for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. If you're looking at your worship guide right now, you've noticed that 8 through 12 is indented. That's because the author of Hebrews did not write these words. They are originally from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. And you may know that Jeremiah was a prophet, a man of God, in the time of ancient Israel. And he spent most of his days warning the Israelites about breaking the covenant because they were no longer being faithful and they were sinning against God. God's patience was growing thin as they continued to break the covenant. But he offers hope when he writes these words because God has an escape plan for them. The new covenant mentioned here was not going to be like the old one as we see in verse 9. It was going to be better. But how? What are the promises that were mentioned in verse 6? I believe that God gives three, pass- three promises here in this passage, and the first one is in verse 10. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. The Old Covenant was written on parchment, and stone tablets, but the new covenant was going to be written on the hearts and minds of the people. This means that the new covenant is ingrained on God's people in a new way. A month ago, I preached about our tendency to forget the good things that God does for us. The ancient Israelites had this problem even worse than us because they did not have the laws written on their minds and hearts. It's harder to forget about God when his words are literally written into your soul. And that's what the new covenant provides, a greater assurance of faithfulness, a greater assurance of faithfulness within us. In other words, there's a freedom from sin that comes with the new covenant unlike the old. And I'll be the first to admit, we still sin, but there is a freedom of sin there. We are free from our sinful natures so that through the power of Christ, we can overcome sin. There once was an old man who had just come out of surgery, and he needed some medication for his recovery. But this medication had some bad side effects. So the doctor came to his wife and warned her, this medication tends to lower people's inhibitions, basically meaning that any thoughts that cross their minds are spoken. Usually they have filters that filter out those vulgar and offensive thoughts, but this medicine takes that away. And the medicine is necessary for the recovery. So the wife reluctantly agreed. But she was definitely worried about what would happen, what he would say once, he was, once the medicine had taken effect. So they administered the medication. And once the man came to, he said this. 
The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lay down beside green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. With the new laws and covenant written on our hearts, we have the freedom from our sinful nature to worship God as we should. The second major perk and promise of the new covenant is that we will know him in a deeper way. Verse 11. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. People under the new covenant get to know God even better than the people of the old covenant did. We get to have a personal relationship with the triune God who died for us and saves us from sin and death. Surveys reveal that around 60% of people in the U.S. struggle with loneliness on a fairly regular basis. And loneliness has proven to lower your lifespan. According to the Surgeon, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, he estimates that, it is, that loneliness is as bad for your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. If loneliness is that bad for you, and 60% of the population suffers from it, then this is a national epidemic. But how lucky we are that we have a God who we can know on an intimate level, to whom we can belong, and who gives us a place like the church to belong to and to fulfill our purpose God helps us with our loneliness by giving us his body, the church, where we can belong and be known. And finally, verse 12 tells us that God will be merciful toward our iniquities and will remember our sins no more. Having the covenant written on our hearts helps us get free from our sinful natures, but there's still the sin of our past that holds us back with its guilt and shame. Even if you live perfectly from now on, you might be haunted by the sins of your past. But God is merciful. Think about this for a second. We worship a God who knows everything. He's been around since before time began, and he's seen everything. So it's kind of a ridiculous notion to think that God would forget something. Despite that, this verse tells us that God will remember your sins no more. Not because he has a bad memory, but because he chooses to not hold those sins against you, to forget about them. Because he took that punishment for himself upon the cross. There's a popular story about the theologian Augustine. The origins of the story have been lost to time, so we're not sure if it's true or not, but it's an important story nonetheless. Augustine was one of those guys who had the testimony that made everybody cry when they heard it because his life looked opposite of Jesus's before coming to the faith. 
And one day he was walking down the street when a prostitute recognized him. So wanting to restart their profitable relationship, she called out to him, Augustine, Augustine, it is I, it is I. And without turning, missing a beat, Augustine turned and said, I, but it is no longer I. I, but it is no longer I. Augustine escaped his past full of guilt and shame, not by his power, not by I, but by him who mediates the new covenant. He had God's word written on his heart. He knew God. And he was free from his sin, his sin and shame. God loves us so much that he is unwilling to leave us in our sin. So Jesus came and he died for us, taking the punishment upon himself. And after rising from the dead, he now resides in heaven, advocating for us daily so that our sins may be forgiven. And God made a covenant with us. God made a legal contract, a legal agreement with us, and he cannot lie, he cannot break the covenant. He is too righteous. And that covenant is to be your God and to make you his own. And he has the power to fulfill that promise. Even when we stray, when we wander, he keeps his covenant with us and pursues us. He speaks to us and reminds us that we are his. This is the hope we have with Jesus as our high priest. The life of discipleship to Christ isn't easy. It just isn't but it's worth it. It's better because God promises to make you his own. You can have freedom from your sin and your past and have a personal relationship with the king of the universe. So choose the new way of life, the new covenant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your blessings. Thank you for your promises that you keep. Thank you for writing your laws on our hearts that we might be free from our sinful natures. Thank you for letting us know you, having a relationship with you, for giving us a place to belong and a person to belong to. Thank you for making us yours, forgiving us of our sins, God. I pray that your promises would help us to not go to our past, to not be comforted by our old sins, God, but to hold on in the pressures of this life. Thank you for holding fast to us. In your name, amen.